you have your Bibles and you'd like to, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. And as you do, let me begin with prayer. Almighty and ever gracious God, since all our salvation depends upon your holy word, please grant that our hearts may be set free from worldly things, so that we may with all diligence and faith hear your word, rightly understand your gracious will, and in all sincerity live according to it, to your praise and glory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, kids, I need some help. Can you finish this for me? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had... I'm one of them, so let's all praise the Lord. All right, thank you. I've told you before, some of our best doctrine comes from the songs that we teach our children. And this is no exception. It's absolutely true that we consider Abram, Abraham our forefather. And yet hardly anyone in this room is of Jewish heritage. So you may wonder, why do we teach our kids to sing that they're sons of Abraham? Well, so far in our study of Genesis... We've discovered that we are all descendants of the first man, Adam, and as such, we are made in the image of God. But also, we are by nature sinners and enemies of that God in whose image we are made due to Adam's sin. We've also seen that we are all descendants of Noah, which makes us still image bearers of God. And it makes us recipients of the promise that God will preserve this creation from destruction until the last day of judgment. But that judgment is still coming because sin remains in the children of Adam and of Noah. Being a son or a daughter of Adam or of Noah is a mere biological fact that has theological Blessings and curses. But being a child of Father Abraham is something altogether different. Abraham is the father of all the faithful, whether Jew or Gentile. You don't have to be physically descended from Abraham to be included in his family and receive the promised blessing alongside all the other heirs of promise. Scripture couldn't be more clear. The promise is for all those who believe it. Because the promise to Abraham wasn't completely new. It's a continuation of the promise that the Lord made in the garden. That the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. It's the same promise that was preserved when the Lord redeemed Noah from the sinful world and brought him through the waters of judgment in the flood. The promise to Abraham is the fulfillment of the blessing that Noah gave to Shem and to Japheth that Shem would have Yahweh as his covenant Lord and that Japheth's descendants would be blessed by living in Shem's tents. And now, with Abram, whose name God would later change to Abraham, we see that promise become a little clearer and a little sharper. In our text tonight... Abram receives the promise of God 
that in chapter 15, the Lord will ratify through a covenant ceremony. And in chapter 17, he'll confirm with a covenant sign. We're actually going to spend, don't be scared, the next three months studying the life of Abraham as we move through our study of Genesis. So my task tonight is to give you the introduction to this story and the promise that kicks it off. Scripture tells us that those who belong to Jesus are true sons of Father Abraham, so we can all praise the Lord. So let's look at the text. Let's look at how it all began for Abram. And as we do, we'll see an unremarkable pedigree, an unmerited pledge, and unmitigated piety. That's the outline that's in the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. And kids, you'll find the words for you to listen to in their normal place. So first... An unremarkable pedigree. And this will cover chapter 11, verses 10 through 31. And Matt did a fantastic job, so I'm not going to reread it for you now, but we'll hit a couple of the points as we move on. Our text begins with yet another genealogy. Just one chapter back, Moses had detailed how all the various nations were descended from each of the sons of Noah. So some of the names in this list were repeated back in chapter, or their repeats from chapter 10. But this list is focused on a specific line, from Shem to Peleg, the son of Eber, and then extending to Terah, the father of Abram. And I hope, as Matt read, the pattern there sounded familiar, because Moses is using the same form here as he did back in chapter 5, giving the descendants of Seth to Noah. When we look at the similarities between these two lists, we find that the Lord had inspired Moses to intentionally set up Abram as a parallel to Noah. Notice that like in Noah's lineage, here in chapter 11, Moses lists the father's name, the age at which the significant son was born, and then rather giving the age that the father died, he gives the father's lifespan after that important son was born. There were ten generations from Adam to Noah. And there are ten generations here from Shem to Abram. And like Noah, Terah, the last man in this short list, has three sons. So all of those things should clue us in that something noteworthy is happening here. We're continuing to trace that, that line of the promised seed of the woman. And when we arrive at Abram, we're coming to the next major phase of redemptive history. Like Noah, and like Adam before him, Abram is a father of the people of God. And he receives a promise of redemption for himself and his descendants And one that has implications for the whole world. It's also significant that we're tracing the line of Shem here. Remember, if you've been with us back at the uh, end of chapter 9, Noah had prophetically spoken a curse on Ham, and specifically on his youngest son, Canaan. But he had blessed Shem and Japheth along with Shem. That's why Abram is significant He's from the line of blessing. What we see here is God continuing to fulfill his word. 
like everyone else in that time and culture, everything in Abram's life was built on family ties. As was common, we see here intermarriage within the clan. We'll find out later Abram's wife Sarai was his half-sister. And his brother Nahor married his own niece. That was common to keep the family ties close. Abram was from an area called Ur. It's in modern-day Iraq. And he traveled with his father and extended family from there, following the Euphrates River past Babylon into what is modern southeast Turkey, near Syria. And they lived at a place called Haran. And as we see Abram doing these things, he's living the normal life. This was the expectation. You would spend your life with your father's household. You would live where they lived. You would work like they worked. You would worship how they worshipped. And then you'd raise the next generation with that extended clan. But as we're introduced to this great father of many nations, we immediately see that not all is well. First, there's tragedy in the family. Abram's brother Haran died while the family was still in Ur. But second, and far more central to Abram's life, is that as we read in verse 30, his wife Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is the first use of that term barren in Scripture, and it introduces a new problem. It's one of those heartbreaking consequences of the fall into sin. It's the direct opposite of that blessing command that God gives to be fruitful and multiply. Sin completely undermines God's plan for the world. And more than just the personal devastation that unchosen childlessness brings to a couple who desires the blessing of children. In this culture, at this time, it spelled economic and societal disaster. Children were necessary to perpetuate the clan, to work for food, and to help care for aging parents. And barrenness was seen as a mark of personal failing often leading the barren woman or the couple to be treated as pariahs. Something's wrong with them. So Sarai's barrenness is introduced at the very beginning of her and Abram's story because it will be central to their lives going forward. And that's for Chris to tell you about in future weeks. This aside in this genealogy is its vital information. Just like we've seen in earlier genealogies, the inserted information is important. But notice how this one is different from what we've seen earlier in Genesis. There's nothing in this list of men that suggests any special exploits or skills like those of Nimrod or of Cain's descendants. Abram is not a king or a mighty man and he doesn't come from a royal line. There's also no hint in this list of faithfulness to the Lord like we saw in Seth's line. Remembrance of his promises like Enoch and Lamech had. None of that is here. Abram's not like Noah. Noah who is described as living righteously in the middle, midst of an evil world and standing out for his righteous life. In fact, Joshua would later tell the Israelites 
And then Stephen would affirm in his sermon in Acts 7 that Abram's father, Terah, was an idolater in Ur. And according to the ages here in this list, Shem is still alive. He's still alive watching while his descendants abandoned the God who had delivered Noah and his sons through the flood. So we're, here we have, we have Abram, a pagan nomad from Ur, of no high birth, no particular gifting, living with his idolatrous family, serving false gods, and the only exceptional thing about him is his wife is unable to have children. And this is the man. This is the one out of all those descendants of Shem that was specially chosen by God to receive a blessing and a covenant. This is where we begin to see how Abram's life parallels the life of every Christian. Abram's chosen out of that mass of sinful men as the special object of God's saving love based on God's grace alone. Just like everyone else that the Lord saves. See, God displays his wisdom in choosing the least expected and the least deserving to receive his promises and to be the human instruments of his work on earth. It's the same thing that Paul told the church in Corinth. He wrote, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We look at Abram and we think, why him? But I know, because I have talked to you about it, that many of you, have experienced the mercy of God reaching you when you were far from Him, completely lost in your sin, not looking for Him at all, and He in His grace came and He called you out of that darkness into His kingdom of light. And you continue to ask, why me? Why Abram? And why you? And why me? Because we have something to offer God. Because we're somehow better than those around us? No. Because of God's free grace and his love alone. Abram is a testimony to the lavish grace of God who saves sinful and unremarkable men and women and boys and girls and he makes them into a holy and special people for himself. So we who trust in Christ, along with Abram, We have no ground to boast, but we should never grow tired of the wonder of the gospel that God would save a sinner like Abram, or like you, or like me. Let the truth of the gracious election of God assure you of his love for you, and increase your love for him, and your joy in your salvation. So now that we've been introduced to Father Abraham with his unremarkable pedigree. Let's now look at God's unmerited, unmerited pledge to him. Beginning in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Moses writes this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in verse 7, God fills out that blessing even more. When Abram is in the promised land, and the Lord says, To your offspring I will give this land. So the Lord begins by calling Abram into a unique relationship. And we shouldn't miss the significance that the Lord is speaking here. It's the first time that he has spoken since the covenant with Noah. For ten generations, no one on the earth had heard the voice of God. But now, in the words of one commentator, the word of the Lord that called the cosmos into being now calls Abram to reestablish God's kingdom on earth. And there's really no way to overemphasize the importance of God's call of Abram and his promises to him. Not only can we not understand the rest of Genesis without it, we cannot understand the rest of Scripture without it. This, this act of God is central to God's plan to bring salvation to the whole world There's a direct through line from this covenant with Abram, with its seeds planted here, through the rest of Scripture to the promised Messiah. And again, there's nothing in Abram that would make him deserving of such a high calling or blessing. It's totally unmerited. It is based on God's gracious providential plan alone. And for Abram to take part in this plan, the Lord gives three specific things for him to leave behind, and they're in increasing difficulty. He's to leave behind his homeland, his kindred, and his own father's house. He was to make a complete break with his former identity as an idolatrous son of Terah from Ur, to receive a new identity as the worshiper of the one true God, And become the father of all the faithful. This call was costly. Abram would have to leave behind all assurance of security and comfort. And everything that he was familiar with. And everything in his culture. He would have to leave it behind to follow this call. But the command of where he's going to go wasn't specific. God says, Abram get going and I'll show you once you get there. Where we're going. Think how much faith this would have required. To not only leave behind all that was comfortable and known, but to follow a God worshipped by no one else he knew and head towards who knows where. No wonder the author of Hebrews holds Abram up as an exemplar in the faith. He writes in Hebrews 11.8, which we heard in our New Testament reading, by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Faith produces, and it's demonstrated by, obedience. And only faith produces true obedience. So Abraham was able to go out by faith. Because the center of God's call here is not on what Abram must do for the Lord, 
but on all the things that the Lord promised to do for Abram. In these verses, these three verses, 12, 1 through 3, the word for blessing appears five times. The promise of blessing is overflowing here, and it's foundational to Abram's response in obedience. Abram has nothing to offer the Lord, but the Lord offers everything to Abram. We can summarize the promises that God gives him under five headings. There's four of them in verse 2. Descendants, material blessing, a name, and being a blessing, which he then expounds and explains more in verse 3. And then the fifth heading in verse 7, land for the promised descendants. Or, in alliterative terms, because I know you want that, God promises Abram progeny, prosperity, prominence, provision and protection, and a province. Progeny, he promises to make Abram, the man with a barren wife and no children, into a great nation. And Moses uses this word here intentionally, nation. Because as Gordon Wenham explains, a nation is a political unit with a common land, language, and government, whereas people primarily draws attention to the consanguinity, the biological relatedness of the group. God is saying he'll make a nation out of Abram. And the word for nation here is actually also the word that the Jews would use to describe all the Gentiles. So this promise from the very beginning had far less to do with just those related by blood to Abram. And instead, it's hinting at how this promise will have a global effect. All the nations. Prosperity. God promises that as Abram leaves behind the security of his homeland and his kin... He will not lack anything that he needs. God would take care of him. And yet, as one commentator clarifies, material blessing is not the end in itself. He writes, What modern secular man calls luck or success, the Old Testament calls blessing, for it insists that God alone is the source of all good fortune. Indeed, the presence of God walking among his people is the highest of his blessings. Material blessings are in themselves tangible expressions of divine benevolence. God was blessing Abram, not only with physical things, but with his very presence walking with him. Prominence. God here is setting up a stark contrast to Nimrod and to Babel that we heard about last week. Where at Babel, the people strove to make a name for themselves in constructing a city and a monument to their greatness, God says, Abram, I will make your name great. True greatness is found when the Lord is the one who establishes the name of his servants. Provision and protection. Abram is not blessed for his own sake alone, but in order to be a source of blessing to others. This is the great commission of the Abrahamic covenant. All the families will be blessed because of Abram and his offspring. But it's not an automatic thing. The blessing is going to spill out on all those who align themselves with Abram, with God's covenant partner. But those who stand against him will receive a curse instead. Abram will certainly have enemies. 
But he has no need to fear. The Lord will protect him. As Gordon Wenham again notes, those who merely disdain Abram will be cursed by God himself. And then finally, the, the province. Once Abram reaches the land, the Lord reveals where Abram's offspring will one day live. He says, to your offspring I will give this land. And when he says offspring, that's that same word seed. And it's used here for the first time again since that covenant with Noah. That should be our next hint that something is going on here that goes beyond just the biological children that Abram will have. The language is, is intentional. When we hear of the seed of Abram inheriting this land, our ears ought to perk up and our minds ought to be, begin thinking about the seed of the woman who was promised to bring salvation to the whole world. The promise to Abram has implications that reach far beyond his children's children's children. In fact, the same five promises given to Abram are received in greater measure by the seed of Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in turn, by his church as he shares his gifts with us. This is what I mean. Abram was promised progeny, a great nation. God would give him children. Hebrews 2.12 tells of Jesus' progeny when it places the prophecy of Isaiah in the mouth of Christ. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus was given progeny. Abram was promised prosperity, a blessing. What do we hear in Revelation 5? When John is in the throne room of God, he sees those in heaven saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Abram was promised prominence, a great name. And Paul writes of Jesus in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above everything. Every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The Lord told Abram that he would be a blessing, that through Abram's line would come provision for others. And in Acts, we find Peter preaching of Jesus, directly quoting this passage. He says to the Jews that were listening to him, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you. How? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. The blessing of the Lord Jesus is redemption from sin. For those who trust in him. And Abram received a promise that his seed would have a province. But this is not only the land of Canaan, but the whole world. As we see the promise spoken to the Messiah in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Brothers and sisters, all the promises of God, not least the promises made to Abram, find their yes and amen 
in Christ. But this was not only for the sake of Jesus. The very same promises he receives, the gifts that he gets, he also freely shares with his people. We who believe in Christ are the progeny of Abraham. He is our father. Romans 4, 16 and 17 says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Through Christ, we have received true prosperity, not mere worldly riches that fade away, but riches that last. The one that Paul tells the Ephesian church about when he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The one with the name above all names offers us prominence, a new name. John records these words of Jesus in Revelation 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. Like Abram, our blessing includes provision and protection. The Lord Jesus calls us to be a blessing in the world through the Great Commission, and he promises to bless those who bless his people, and they receive our message of reconciliation, while those who afflict his people will receive judgment. Consider what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica as an example. He writes, God is just. He will pay back, those, he, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And Paul makes it clear that the promise of the land was not restricted to Canaan, but the promised province extends to the ends of the earth when he says... For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promises to Abram were promises for Christ and are offered to all who along with Abram trust in Christ. These promises belong to us by faith. So before we move on to see Abram's response to this call, let's consider some applications for ourselves as we look at these promises. Because just like Abram, we have not merited any blessing from the Lord, and he offers it to us anyway. First, we can have the same hope as Abram. Because the New Testament makes it crystal clear that the promise that Abram received was explicitly about Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 3.16, and he tells us who this promised offspring was. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
Abram's hope was summed up in the promise that Christ would be the fulfillment bringing blessing. Jesus himself said, Abraham looked forward and rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Christ was Abram's future hope. Is Jesus your greatest treasure and hope? Second, we see that we have the same way of salvation as Abram. Paul quotes Genesis 12.3 when he writes in Galatians 3.8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The Apostle Paul says that the promise to Abram was no less than the gospel of justification by faith. There is no other way of salvation than faith in the work of the Lord Jesus. If you have not placed your trust in Him, the call to you tonight is to turn away from your sin, turn away from your self-righteousness, and believe in Jesus for salvation from your sins. God's Word promises that if you place your faith in Christ, you will be blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Third application. Our call, like Abram's, is costly. We must leave behind our sin, our worldly hopes, and anything else the Lord might require of us to follow him. Jesus taught in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It is a costly call, but the cost is worth it. Because Jesus goes on to promise, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Eternal life. Those who seek to make a name for themselves are only going to reap emptiness. But those who sacrifice worldly ambition for eternal blessing will be exalted along with the blessed seed of Abraham. So count the cost, but abandon everything for Jesus, like Abram did. And you too will find blessing. And last application here. We have the same commission as Abram had, blessing for the whole world. The blessings for Abram and later for the nation of Israel were not meant to be hoarded and cherished for their own sakes alone. They were to bless the entire world. And Jesus gives the same commission for us. Luke 24 says, Then Jesus opened his disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his, nation, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The gospel is a treasure. So how do you treat it? As a gift to be shared or as something to be hoarded? Are you supporting gospel ministry around the world and across the streets with your prayers, 
your giftings and talents with your money? Are you ready and willing when the opportunity arises to give a defense of the hope that's within you? Church, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing so that in us, the nations would receive blessings. Not merely material ones, though we certainly have those, but even greater, a heavenly inheritance. So may we seek to increase in the call to be a blessing more and more. So this man from an unremarkable pedigree received from the Lord an unmerited pledge then he responded in unmitigated piety. Look at Abram's response beginning at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.'" So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going going toward the Negev. In this entire passage, Moses does not record Abram speaking. But his actions speak louder than his words. He does exactly as the Lord commands. It demonstrates his wholehearted faith. God says, go, and Abram goes. Simple as that. And for the first time, we're told the detail of Abram's age. He's 75 years old. This is not the undertaking of a young man setting out in life. This is not a midlife crisis. This is a complete change for a man that is passing from middle age to old age. And he goes. Abram and Sarai and their nephew Lot, they head southwest from Haran, continuing into the heart of Canaan until he reaches Shechem, smack dab in the middle of the promised land. Only up to this point, Abram had no idea it was the promised land. The Lord had given him step-by-step directions. He was following, but he hadn't been told where he was going until the Lord reveals that Abram had arrived. But he's immediately met with a problem when he's there. The territory is occupied. And not only occupied, but occupied by the enemy. The descendants of that cursed man, Canaan, they're the ones in the land. Meaning, in the words of one commentator, the land to which the Lord has led Abram is occupied territory, and that by an accursed people, the seed of the serpents. Yet again, we see this running theme of the line of the seed of the serpent over against the line of the seed of the woman. So Abram doesn't despair because the Lord does something that hasn't happened at least since Enoch possibly since the Garden of Eden. 
He shows up in a visible form. He appears to Abram to testify that he would continue to accompany Abram throughout his journeys. And that though this father of the people would not possess the land, his descendants certainly would. Abram would be a sojourner for his entire life. But he had heavenly hope based on God's promise. And there could really only be one response to such a great word of blessing. Abram builds an altar and he worships. And he picks the most conspicuous spot. The Oak of Moreh was a pagan worship site. It was where all the Canaanites in the area came to gather to worship demons. And that's where he builds the altar dedicated to the worship of the one true God. Abram knew that worship is an act of spiritual warfare. And so as Derek Kidner writes, Abram's action planted the flag, so to speak, at the heart of the promised land and declared that Yahweh's writ runs everywhere. And then Abram continues traveling all the way through the land, temporarily pitching his tents, but building permanent altars. Worshiping the Lord, the rightful king, not only of Canaan, but of the whole earth. And this promise made to Abram was not merely a sliver of land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. As Paul writes in Romans 4.13, the promise was that he and his offspring would inherit the entire world. Abram went into the land, not merely seeking it, but as we heard in our New Testament reading, seeking the city founded by God, and as the author of Hebrews goes on to say, a heavenly country better than any found on this earth. The land of milk and honey is only a shadow of what Father Abraham and all his children will one day share. So, seeing Abram's response to the promises of God, let us join him. We can join him in the same active faith. We have a more sure word than Abram. We are this side of the cross and the resurrection of Abram's offspring. We've seen it be fulfilled A true man or woman of faith responds to the call of God by staking their whole life on his promises. And because of those sure words, they live lives marked by obedience to his commands. Abram had the call to go, and he was promised the blessing of God. We have the promise of every spiritual blessing in Christ, and the call to love God with our whole selves, And our neighbors as ourselves. So let us place all our trust in Christ. And so submit ourselves to his commands. Through the same active faith as our father Abraham. Second, we can have the same response in worship as Abram. Abram had every reason to keep his worship private and hidden from the hostile Canaanites. Yet he intentionally carried out his worship in the sight of those who served the serpents. Surely, brothers and sisters, as often as we can, 
we ought to boldly and confidently join in the worship of the one who has crushed the head of the serpent, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He calls us every Lord's Day to gather in his presence. He is here. So like Abram, let us respond to that call willingly and give him the honor that he is due. Finally, we need to recognize that we are walking the same pilgrimage as Abram. We must leave behind the trappings of this world and set our hope on the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. May we travel light, so to speak, never forgetting that this world is not our home. We have no abiding city here but that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This promise to Abram, the continuation of the very first promise in the garden, it continues for us today. So may we each lay hold of it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Oh Lord God, make it so. May it be so. That we would trust your sure word. That we would wholeheartedly devote ourselves to the Lord Jesus, whose commands are good for us, and they guide us on straight paths of righteousness as your grace leads the way, walks alongside us, and chases us home. Strengthen us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.